China announced this week that more people died last year in the country than were born. That is a larger percentage drop than births during the famine after Mao's Great Leap Forward. More on how this will shape China's future coming up. It's Tuesday, January 17th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the U.S. government creates millions of classified documents each year. How does it keep track of them, and how does it know when one's missing? When a city in France was bombed during World War I, a painting was believed to have been destroyed, and then it was spotted behind pop star Madonna when she appeared in Paris Match magazine. And Shakira's new single is a full-on diss aimed at her ex. It went straight to the top of the Spotify Top 50 global chart and hit 100 million views on YouTube in less than three days. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. is urging allies to further limit China's access to advanced semiconductors, which are vital components of electronic devices and on which communications, military systems, clean energy, and other applications rely. Discussions over semiconductors was expected to be a main focus of President Biden's talks today with the Netherlands visiting Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Both the U.S. and the Netherlands are global leaders in semiconductor technologies. The U.S. wants its ally to further restrict China's access to advanced semiconductors. Before the meeting, Biden addressed concerns over China's influence in the Indo-Pacific. Together we're working on uh, how to uh, uh, keep a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, and, uh, quite frankly, uh, meet the challenges of China. Simply put, our companies, our countries have been so far in just lockstep. Separately, the Netherlands says it will assist the U.S. and Germany in their efforts to train and arm Ukrainian troops with advanced Patriot defense systems against Russia's ongoing assault. But Ruta did not say exactly how the Dutch government planned to help. Funerals have begun for the more than 40 people who died in a Russian missile attack on an apartment building in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarni reports young children, a pregnant woman, and a 15-year-old ballet dancer are among the victims. In a cemetery on the outskirts of the city, mourners gathered for the burial of Mikhailo Koronovsky. He was a beloved boxing coach in charge of the regional team in Dnipro. He was killed in his apartment in one of the worst attacks on civilians in Ukraine since the start of this war, nearly a year ago. Hundreds of people came to the cemetery to pay their respects. Many of the mourners were young men who Koronovsky had trained. They brought flowers and boxing gloves in his honor. Koronovsky's wife and children survived. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Now turning to Wall Street, U.S. stocks end of the day mixed. The tech-heavy Nasdaq end of the day up slightly. But as NPR's David Gurr reports, disappointing bank earnings dragged the Dow down 391 points or more than 1 percent. In the fourth quarter, Goldman Sachs did worse than Wall Street expected, and the bank's share price fell by more than 6 percent. CEO David Solomon called the quarter disappointing. Goldman's bread and butter is investment banking, and with high inflation and rising interest rates, that business has suffered. Last week, the bank laid off 6% of its staff. Morgan Stanley's share price was up after it exceeded forecasts, thanks to gains in its wealth management business. And once again, Wall Street's attention turns to Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned the U.S. is on track to hit the debt ceiling on Thursday, and the government will have to start using what are called extraordinary measures to avoid a default. It's NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The husband of a missing Cohasset woman is now charged with her murder. Norfolk County DA Michael Morrissey says Brian Walsh is already being held on a half million dollars bail for misleading investigators in the case. He has pled not guilty to those charges and is currently being held at the Norfolk County House of Correction. The continued investigation has now allowed police to obtain an arrest warrant charging Brian Walsh with the murder of his wife. Mr. Walsh is to be arraigned tomorrow in Quincy District Court. Anna Walsh has been missing since early New Year's Day. The body of the 39-year-old mother of three has not been found. The Boston City Council voted unanimously last month to form a task force to look at reparations and reconciliations efforts for black Bostonians. Today on Radio Boston, NAACP Boston President Tanisha Sullivan said one of the biggest components of that will be educational outreach. WBR's Chris Siderick has more. Sullivan says before considering cash payments to descendants of enslaved people, it's necessary to dig into our complex history together. It is our hope that as a city, we'll be able to learn together about that history before we even get into a conversation about what reparations or repair may or may not look like. Sullivan adds that to truly understand the impact of slavery, you have to look beyond slave owners and examine the systems that help support its existence. It was also... Um, allowed to sustain and thrive, quite frankly, by those who enabled it. Um, You know, there's financing that was involved. Sullivan hopes the discussions that follow can bring everyone together in the end. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. Healthcare workers at Faulkner Hospital in Jamaica Plain staged a lunchtime walkout this afternoon to protest low wages. Personal care attendants at Faulkner earn $15.45 an hour. They've been unsuccessfully negotiating for raises since July. Hospital employee Stacy Welch says workers are asking for at least $5 more per hour for essential expenses. Pay us so when we receive our check on a Thursday, we don't have to scratch our head to see how we're going to meet our mortgage payment to see how we're going to feed our children this week. Fear something fairly. The hospital said in a statement that it's trying to reach a fair agreement with workers. The next round of negotiations is set for Thursday. In the forecast, 48 degrees now, mostly cloudy overnight tonight, maybe a shower early, overnight lows in the mid-30s. Partly sunny tomorrow, pretty much the same thing as today in terms of temperatures, highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Chinese leader Xi Jinping often talks about the opportunities ahead for his country in the face of what he calls changes unseen in a century. Well, sometimes those changes create challenges for him, too. Within the last 24 hours, three pieces of news left many to wonder what's next for the world's second largest economy. Overnight, Beijing reported its population had declined for the first time in six decades. We'll hear more about that in a few moments. This morning, it confirmed its economic performance last year was among the weakest in the country's modern history. And today, President Biden has been meeting with the visiting Dutch prime minister in what analysts say is an intensifying effort to limit China's access to sophisticated technology from the Netherlands, as NPR's John Ruwich reports. At the center of it all is the Netherlands' biggest company. It's called ASML. This promo video gives a sense of what it does. (laughs) 
What's the one thing the world should know about ASML? We create the future. ASML makes machines that make chips. There is a footprint of ASML in your life and can be... ASML makes the world's most advanced lithography machines. Those are the devices that create cutting-edge microchips with transistors that are one ten-thousandth the width of a piece of hair, or even smaller. The Biden administration doesn't want Beijing getting its hands on the best microchips. Out of concern, they'll give China's military an edge. And in the fall, the administration introduced sweeping new rules restricting American entities from exporting to China those chips and the gear that makes them. The U.S. government very much would like to get the, the European, in this case especially Dutch counterparts, to, to, to join the export controls. Risto Puhaka is with the company Tech Insights, which does semiconductor market analysis. And that's been kind of the main objective here and, and is the cause of the friction. Friction because the Dutch have been resistant. Their threat perception of China is different from that of the U.S., he says. And the market's a big one for ASML, even though it already withholds its best technology from China. Let me, let me put this way. Right now, ASML ships more machines to China than to the United States. So why would you stop doing business in China? That could be a problem for the Biden administration, says Graham Webster, a research scholar at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. The administration says it isn't pushing allies, but Webster says the effort only really works if all key players are on board. And if there's some leakage, and if other key countries, specifically Japan, the Netherlands, or Taiwan um, are willing to play with China, this gives China the ability to create an alternative supply chain that's independent of the United States. Meanwhile, Beijing is doing its own lobbying. In November, Chinese leader Xi Jinping met Dutch Prime Minister Ruta and told him attempts to politicize economic and trade issues must be rejected. John Ruwich, NPR News. The sense of urgency in Beijing is palpable. The world's most populous country faces an uncertain economic future, and now demographic trends show the country's population is officially shrinking. That will have dramatic economic and geopolitical impacts in the long term. Here's NPR's Emily Fang. The last time China's population shrank was in 1960, and that was because of a man-made famine under the ruling Communist Party called the Great Leap Forward. Tens of millions of people starved to death. This time, China is shrinking again, not because significantly more people are dying, but because birth rates are dropping. According to official numbers, China's birth totals have plummeted by over 40 percent since the year 2016. This is Nicholas Eberstadt, a senior researcher at the Washington-based think tank American Enterprise Institute. That is a larger percentage drop than births during the famine after Mao's Great Leap Forward. We are seeing an absolutely seismic shock. That's something that usually only occurs in societies when there's a sudden convulsion from total war or an upheaval due to a terrible, terrible plague. A seismic shock because China's meteoric economic growth the last 40 years was hugely dependent on being a big populous country with lots of young workers. That gave them a big domestic market to sell to and a pool of cheap labor that could build cities and make goods for export. But anyone who's followed demographics in China has known for at least a decade that someday China's total headcount would drop, just not this soon. Okay, to me, it's a no, it's a no surprise. That's Dr. Yifu Xian. 
He's a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and in the last few years, he's become kind of a demography whistleblower. He believes China's own data shows the population actually started shrinking in 2018 and that the state willfully inflated its numbers by more than 100 million people. At that, that time, the Chinese government was very angry with me. Angry at him because his predictions played into Beijing's fears that a decline in the working age population would make it hard to sustain its ambition to overtake the U.S. China's latest GDP data announced this week on the same day shows economic growth continues to slow even before the full effects of its looming demographic crunch have hit. At this point, you're probably wondering why China's birth rate has slowed so drastically. Uh, it's because of a, what, what's called an echo effect. Dr. Wang Feng is a sociology professor at the University of California, Irvine, and he explains birth rates were already falling in the 1970s, well before China imposed a one-child policy cap in all families. And now the people descended from those generations are also having fewer children, an echo from the past, though for new reasons. There's the drastic postponement of marriage uh, among young people, the, that change has accompanied this vast expansion in education, higher education, urbanization, and uh, changes in attitudes. The state has tried to incentivize having more children, but only between married heterosexual couples. And so far, it's had no luck. Statistics announced this week showed birth totals dropped another 10% this past year alone. Emily Fang, NPR News. Shakira is back, and on her new song, she is proudly single. All right, this is a full-on diss track aimed at her ex, a retired Spanish soccer star. The single went straight to the top of Spotify's Top 50 Global Chart. It hit 100 million views on YouTube in just under three days. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento is here to explain what this has all been about. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, exactly, you know, just explain, like, why this song is making such waves right now. Yeah, so Shakira's last album came out in 2017. We haven't heard a ton of music from her over the years. She released two singles last year, but she is kicking 2023 into high gear. So this is a very, you know, this EDM house sound is kind of a departure from the Latin fusion vibes that we might be more familiar with, like, you know, Hips Don't Lie, or even the electro pop sounds of She Wolf. Yeah, but this new sound, I think we can really credit Bizarra for, the Argentine producer. This is part of his YouTube series of collaborations with both emerging and high-profile artists. And, you know, he is only 24, but he consistently produces hits. Sorry, baby, I said rato. So working with him is a really good way for Shakira to put herself back on the map after all this time away. Yeah. And can we just be like really explicit about this? This is all aimed directly at Gerard Piquet. He and Shakira announced their split last summer after more than a decade together. They have two children. But what it feels like right now, at least publicly, Shakira is trying to say like, look, 
I, I'm not broken. This did not break me. Like, is that a fair way to characterize what she is saying right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a song where she's reclaiming her worth after a relationship that, you know, did not end well. Um, it stings even more because she's said publicly that she kind of put her career on the back burner to support him and his, and you know, and their family together. So she's fully roasting him on this track. She name drops him. She name drops his rumored new girlfriend. You know, she says she's out of his league and he traded a Rolex for a Casio. Let's listen. She's saying you left me with my mother-in-law as my neighbor, with the press at my door, and a debt with the treasury, which is literally alluding to her pending trial for tax fraud in Spain. Right. And then just the most killer line. You thought you hurt me, but you made me stronger. Women don't cry anymore. Women make money. That's right. <laughs> you know, she's just literally cashing in on this really painful breakup, and she's using a great song to do so. All right. Like, I'm happy for her, but I am curious. Is, is this, like, <laughs> taking aim thing? Like, th is this a new thing for Shakira? Actually, kind of not at all. I mean, she became a star in Latin America in the 90s with these really biting, heartbroken songs. One of my favorite examples is Si Te Vas from her 1998 album, Donde Están Los Ladrones. I have always loved this song, but I've never understood the lyrics. It's pretty savage. She's literally saying to her boyfriend that if he leaves her, he will regret it and that he should not, you know, exchange her for pedazo de cuero. It's kind of a derogatory term that means a promiscuous woman. I mean, you know, she's always been pretty savage in her attacks. Uh -huh. It's really just the new song that has a new sound behind it. I love it. That is NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, is music an exclusively human thing? A new study says nope. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped more than a full percent today, 392 points. It closed at 33,911. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent to close at 39.91. The Nasdaq pulled in more than a tenth of a percent to finish the day up at 11,095. Vacant office space is at a historic high in the Boston area. That's according to research from the firm Colliers International. New data show vacancy rates in the city are at their highest in years, about 17 percent up. Looking ahead, Collier's calls 2023 a tenants market and says it's likely to remain so as the nation continues to deal with high inflation. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks.
Still unseasonably warm out there, 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Should be mostly cloudy overnight tonight, maybe some showers, especially early in the nighttime. Overnight lows in the mid-30s, and then partly sunny skies tomorrow. Highs should be in the upper 40s for Thursday, mostly cloudy with maybe showers later in the day. High temperatures in the low 40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been more than eight years now since 43 students from a rural teacher's college went missing in Mexico. Two government administrations have said the students are all dead. But as NPR's Ada Peralta reports, their parents have never given up their quest for the truth about what happened to their children. Clemente Rodriguez Moreno sits in his living room in the mountains of Guerrero State. He still has a poster of his son, Cristian, right in the middle of the room. You took them alive, return them alive, it says at the bottom. Two presidents have told him his son is dead. The most convincing evidence he's ever gotten is a 5.5 centimeter piece of bone from Cristian's left foot. Pero, pues yo... But I think if they cut my leg off, if they cut my arm off, I could still survive. Ever since the Ayotzinapa students disappeared in 2014, the government of Mexico has presented story after story of what they say happened. First, that authorities turned the students over to a drug gang. Then, that they were dismembered, incinerated, and thrown into a ravine they call the butchery, where they found the fragment of Christian's foot. But it turned out that authorities likely planted evidence at that ravine. In 2018, a new president ordered a fresh investigation, which recently revealed that some students ended up alive at a military camp. But that story fell apart just weeks after it was presented as, quote, the historical truth. It turned out that the text messages that pointed to a motive were likely fake. Yo sé que... I know that deep down inside, they're hiding something, and they don't want us to get to the truth. The uncertainty, he says, has made him and his wife the walking dead. Every Christmas, every birthday, every holiday, he looks for his son and finds an empty chair. Christian, he says, loved dancing and loved farming. Eh, a pesar de que ha pasado ocho años, o sea, todavía lo seguimos. Even though it's been eight years, he still dreams about his son. In his last dream, he remembers picking up Christian from town, sharing a Coke with him, and bringing him home. This wasn't a memory, he says, because he wasn't a kid anymore. He was tall, with a mustache. Dad, I'm alive, he told me. Don't believe what they're saying. So far, not a single family has a body that they can bury. My heart is telling me that the military is holding my son. The military has him. Because we know in this country, 
there are clandestine jails. To the philosopher Ernesto Priani, the case of Ayotzinapa reminds him of the Akira Kurosawa film Rashomon that explores how humans can have completely different versions of the same crime. And how, at the end, the film leaves you with the idea that the truth is something in between many versions. Priani calls Mexicans orphans of the state. Without institutions they can trust, Mexicans wander, looking in hearts, in their dreams, anywhere to glean some truth. And he says they are left languishing in a kind of philosophical purgatory where... The most powerful evidence is beyond your gasp how you can construct the, the truth. I meet Hilda Leguideño outside of the Ayotzinapa Rural School. A poster with her son's face hangs along the light posts. Leguideño says when the students first went missing, they did call authorities, but they lied over and over, and it left enough doubt that she cannot stop searching. As long as I don't get scientific evidence, I can't forget him. I can't let this be. I ask her, what if scientific evidence is impossible? What if the bodies were dissolved in acid, like the government says? She pauses, her eyes water. For many, it might be easy to say, just accept what the government has told you, true or not true. But as a mother, it's impossible to forget a child. As a mother, I'll be here until the end. Almost every month, the students of the rural college come down from the mountains. They dress in black and march in formation slowly through the city centers. The chants are monotonous and they echo across the state capital of Chilpancingo like the ghosts of their missing classmates. Sometimes students pick up a microphone and scream truths, things that are often said in whispers but rarely said out loud. One student who goes by Diego screams that children are being killed in the mountains by members of the cartels. They parade their guns without fear, he says, because they're in bed with politicians. A mask covers half his face, he says, because sometimes the truth in Mexico is dangerous. But he's here, he says, because he wants Mexicans to join their protest, to wake up to the real truth. The students move across the city. Some leave graffiti on the walls that reads, it was the state. When the students reach the offices of one of the big political parties, they begin banging on the doors with sledgehammers. These are the guys, they claim, who obscure the truth. And when the door doesn't budge, one student pulls out a pipe bomb. Then they keep banging hands bloodied, unsure if the door will ever budge, or even if the truth they seek will be inside. Ada Pralta, NPR News, in Guerrero State, Mexico. So, Ari, if you're trying to track down some missing art, you Mm -hmm. might want to check the collections of the rich and famous. 
Yeah, so it happens a museum in Amiens, France, has managed to trace an oil painting to none other than the queen of pop herself, Madonna. The painting, thought to be by Jérôme Martin Langlois, was commissioned by Louis XVIII to hang in Versailles. It was completed in 1822 and eventually moved to the Musée de Picardie in Amiens. But when the city was bombed during World War I, the painting was believed to have been destroyed. That was until it was spotted behind Madonna when she appeared in Paris Match magazine. The pop singer had bought it at an auction back in 1989. Madonna, you don't know this is the mayor of Amiens, Brigitte Fouret, reaching out to Madonna in a video message asking for a loan. Amiens is in the running to be named the cultural capital of Europe, which will be decided by the European Union in 2028. The city is hoping that a loan and a possible visit from Madonna herself will raise its profile on the cultural map. The singer hasn't responded yet, but we will be watching to see if the museum has the painting hung up on its walls soon. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming to City Space February 6th, James Beard, award-winning celebrity chef Ming Tsai, talks about his career journey and love of East-West cooking. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the next half hour of All Things Considered, the Boston doctor who has created a national model for getting health care to the homeless. His method? Go where they are, on park beaches or beneath bridges, listen to them and earn their trust. Jim O'Connell and the book about him that's out today, authored by Tracy Kidder, both guests coming up later this half hour on All Things Considered. In the forecast, 48 degrees now in the Boston area. Lots of clouds through the remainder of the day with a slight chance of showers early tonight, overnight lows in the mid-30s, and then partly sunny skies for tomorrow, highs again in the upper 40s. Thursday, mostly cloudy, with showers possible later in the day, highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. The head of the World Food Program, David Beasley, is not mincing words, saying the world is in the middle of a food crisis. Now, compounded with the fertilizer crisis, the fuel crisis, I could go on and on. It's all bubbling all around the world. The world is in serious trouble right now. Beasley spoke today at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, saying Russia's war in Ukraine is magnifying food scarcity. He also says climate change and supply chain disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic 
caused the number of people who are on the brink of starvation to balloon to some 350 million. The White House says it will respond in good faith to inquiries from Republican lawmakers about the discovery of classified documents at President Biden's Delaware home and at a private office. Republicans accuse the administration of not being forthcoming about the discoveries. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is claiming that Biden is being treated differently than former President Donald Trump. The White House insists the president is fully cooperating. As of today, all veterans can get emergency mental health care for free at any medical facility in the country. Here's NPR's Quill Lawrence. A new rule now in effect means a veteran in a mental health crisis can get help anywhere, including 30 days of inpatient care and up to 90 days of outpatient treatment. All vets are eligible except those with a dishonorable discharge. VA clinics have had this policy for years, but now vets can walk into the nearest non-VA hospital or clinic, public or private. Suicide among U.S. veterans remains stubbornly high, significantly higher than for people who never served in the military. Anyone thinking about suicide may dial 988, the new three-digit number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Vets should press 1 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. December was a record month for the gambling industry in Massachusetts. That's according to the latest revenue report from state regulators. Sam Hunsick has more. MGM Springfield is still well short of the jackpot it projected when regulators approved its license, but the casino appears to have found its footing, with revenues stabilizing at the end of last year. For the first time, MGM pulled in more than $22 million for three straight months. On the other side of the state, December was a huge month for Encore Boston Harbor. Fueled by table game receipts, Encore reported its highest monthly revenue since it opened, some $68 million. Combined with the slot machine revenue from Plain Ridge Park, gamblers lost $103 million to Massachusetts casinos in December, the most since the industry came online in the state in 2015. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sam Hutzik. The husband of the missing Cohasset woman, Anna Walsh, is now facing a murder charge. The Norfolk County DA's office announced the charge today. Brian Walsh is said to be arraigned tomorrow. He's already being held on a charge of impeding a law enforcement investigation following his wife's disappearance. She was last seen early New Year's Day. Six environmental activists are charged with trespassing and disorderly conduct after they were arrested early this morning while they protested the construction of an electrical substation in East Boston. Some of the activists were with the group Extinction Rebellion. They're calling on Governor Maura Healey to find a way to get Eversource to build a substation at nearby Logan Airport instead. After a contentious eight-year state approval process, construction began on the project last week. And Massachusetts is one of the happiest places in the country, at least that's according to an analysis by the advocacy group NiceRx. The organization found Massachusetts has a happiness score of 8.34 on a scale of 10. That's the third highest in the nation behind Hawaii and Connecticut. NiceRx finds Massachusetts has the country's highest mean household income and one of the lowest poverty rates. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Should be damp into the evening hours, but turning dry and staying cloudy. Temperatures in the mid-30s overnight. Tomorrow, clouds to start. Then we may see some sunshine later in the day. Could reach the low 50s tomorrow with light breezes. Thursday, clouds and rain again. A little bit chillier, down around 41 degrees. 48 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. We're awaiting more details on the mishandling of classified documents linked to President Biden and to his predecessor, Donald Trump. In the meantime, the rest of the government keeps churning out classified documents, millions every year. So we wanted to know more about how the government keeps track of them and how it can know when some go missing. NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie is here to explain. Hey, Greg. Hey, Ari. So with Biden and Trump, it appears that documents were mishandled during the transition as administrations changed over. Is that a, a particularly vulnerable moment? Is it is it an issue in other parts of the government? Well, the short answer is no. When presidents leave office, they're required to return all these records over to the National Archive. But this isn't the case with other government agencies, the CIA, the Pentagon, the State Department. They keep these same classified records at their offices so they can continue to refer to them. And this helps explain why White House records can be vulnerable to mishandling. Every administration has to clean house creating a possibility that some material doesn't go where it's supposed to. Okay, so other government agencies don't have to do this house cleaning, but they still create millions of classified records. So how do they keep track of it all? So I spoke with people who've worked at the CIA and the NSA and other national security outfits, and they said there is no master list. I asked if these agencies could, for example, just do a computer search for all the classified documents that they'd created yesterday or last week or last year. And I was told the answer is no. Now, when national security agencies create classified documents, they often share them with other agencies, and a small portion of them, the ones that are most important and sensitive, will make their way to the White House. And these agencies keep their own classified documents in-house, but they don't have a list of every document they create, and they don't know what happens when a document goes to another agency or even the White House. And I imagine it becomes even more complicated if that classified document is on paper, less searchable than an electronic file on a computer. Would it be easier to track everything if it was all electronic? Yeah, Ari, that, that is true. And now most classified material, but not all of it, is electronic. And you, you partly run into some generational issues. Issues here. Younger officials are more comfortable with electronic records. Some older officials may request physical documents. For example, President Obama read his daily security brief on his iPad. Uh, Trump and George W. Bush like to be briefed verbally. Now, I spoke about this with retired intelligence officer Larry Pfeiffer. At the CIA, he was chief of staff. He also served at the White House, where he ran the Situation Room when Barack Obama was president and Joe Biden was vice president. There are some things that just are not delivered electronically. Some of the most sensitive sourced material that comes out of CIA is often only produced on paper. And that's to prevent some internal threat hacking in and then, then, you know, putting stuff on a storage device or something and walking out the door with it. You say he worked at the CIA and the White House. Did he see a difference in the CIA where people are career intelligence officers and the White House where there's kind of a rotating cast of characters? Yeah, to some degree, the answer is yes. At the CIA, you 
protecting classified material is just drilled into you from day one. And at the White House, you're dealing with people who have a politics background. They do get training and reminders on dealing with classified documents, but it's not something they're doing every day for years. And even that said, mishandling material can happen to anyone. Again, here's Larry Pfeiffer. I don't want to say routine because I don't want some people to think this is something that happens five times a day. But I mean, it's a situation that happens enough. I mean, we actually have a term. We refer to it as a spillage. You know, when classified material is discovered somewhere it is not supposed to be, we call it a spill. (laughs) It's a a term of art that is developed because it happens enough. So is there classified material out there that like nobody knows about, maybe not even the person who has it? That's almost certainly the case, Ari. Uh, I spoke with Glenn Gerstel, the former general counsel at the National Security Agency, and he noted this particular irony. If you're a junior staffer, the likelihood of mishandling classified material is actually quite low. You'll be in a secure room at your agency. You walk in empty-handed. You get briefed, read some classified documents. Then you walk out empty-handed. So there's no real way to accidentally walk off with documents. But if you're the president or secretary of state or CIA director, you're getting a stream of documents at your desk all day, both classified and unclassified, and this creates the possibility you could mix them together in a folder and inadvertently walk out with them. It's NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Charles Darwin once speculated that all animals, beyond just humans, may share the ability to perceive melody and rhythm. He was very optimistic, but the empirical evidence is still very meager. Hank Jan Honing at the University of Amsterdam says although the evidence is slim, there are a few studies out there that support Darwin's idea. There are some talents, that we, some, some skills, some, some basic mechanisms that we share with other animals, and one of those sort of without it, it is actually impossible to make music. And that is this notion of beat perception. Beat perception. One example, Ronan, the disco dancing sea lion, who bobs her head very enthusiastically to earth, wind, and fire. Seriously, watch the video. (laughs) Well, and then there's Snowball the cockatoo, who puts most humans to shame grooving to the Backstreet Boys. Well, now a new study adds more evidence to the idea that other animals can synchronize to a beat, not just through dancing, but through song. That's the sound of a white-handed gibbon, a type of small ape. We look at rhythmic patterns produced by individuals, and what we see is a strong presence of temporal regularity. So tack, 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 like, like an analog clock or the beating of a metronome. Andrea Ravignani is at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands. He and his colleagues recorded gibbons in a reserve in Thailand and in zoos in Italy. And in addition to learning that gibbons could keep a beat singing solo, they also found that males and females could sync up when belting out songs at the same time. And we see that they do influence each other and they overlap above chance. So they are more synchronous than not. The work was published by the Royal Society. Ravignani says the study bolsters the idea that the building blocks of human musical and rhythmic abilities can be found in other species. Probably there is no species with the whole uh, Lego blocks that constitute human musicality and human rhythmicity, but each and every one of them can be at least found in another species. And that's why this study is so, uh, so important for our field, because it is an, an example within the primates 
that we share beat perception and synchronization with another primate, as Darwin predicted. But Henkyon Honing points out that gibbons are not singing to entertain. The gibbons, they, uh, they do these duets because they, they need to bond. This is the way they show to each other that they are a couple, and they show to the environment that it's their territory and that they are a couple. He says studies like this could untangle the evolutionary origins of music, which after all, helps humans sync up too. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Talking about dying can be uncomfortable or awkward and often heartbreaking. But a growing number of people called end-of-life doulas are working to make conversations about the inevitability of death easier for patients and their families. Sarah Whitmire from member station WFIU reports. Kelly McLaughlin makes her way to the couch in her Carmel, Indiana living room, using her cane so she doesn't lose her balance. Her husband, Ryan, is nearby. The strain she is under is written all over their faces. It's been a grueling couple of weeks, not just with the information and decisions we've had to make, but just that turn of the corner of, yes, I'm going to die from this. Kelly found out in 2021 she has brain cancer. It's glioblastoma, stage four, the same kind of cancer that Joe Biden's son, Beau, and U.S. Senator John McCain died from. After surgery a year ago, Kelly's cancer is already back. It's resistant to treatment. It's like shooting BBs at a grizzly bear and thinking you're going to do something. End-of-life doula Angela Hershey is here today to listen, provide support, and hopefully just help Kelly relax. As long as we've been living, we've been dying. And so death doulas are really an ancient role. Angela's been on Kelly's care team since August, helping the family and talking with them about the practical and emotional details of dying. Angela begins lighting incense and laying out an assortment of healing stones and flowers on a small table. Anyone can call themselves a death doula. No license is required and no accreditation agency oversees them. However, Alvin Harmon, the head of the National End of Life Doula Alliance, says the practice has been steadily growing since the pandemic. How people died. That was what became important, having that safe space, that whole space, people dying in a manner that felt safe to them and was important to them. Insurance doesn't cover doulas, so they often work on a sliding scale based on what the client can pay. Although training isn't required, it's helpful, and Harmon says the Alliance does offer classes. They're trained in just how to recognize the client, being able to say there's some other phone calls that we can make, help people making funeral arrangements, you know, all of these things they really, really support. Kelly says it's a difficult time. The youngest of her four kids, a kindergartner, doesn't know yet that her mom is sick. Angela will help the family prepare. There's a chart on Kelly's bedroom wall that lists her top three priorities for the time she has left. Family, friends, and raising awareness about glioblastoma. 
Angela plays a singing bowl in the room. As the sound rises, she steps forward and rubs some perfume over Kelly's heart. As Kelly's condition worsens, Angela will come more often. Kelly hopes the way she's dying will be a final gift to her children. This alternative way of approaching it as a very spiritual and sacred crowning of your life, I think it could be very healing for you and those you love. After Kelly dies, Angela will begin helping the family and supporting them as they deal with the grief of losing a wife and a mother. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Whitmire in Bloomington, Indiana. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, author Tracy Kidder and the Boston doctor who's the subject of his latest book, Just Out Today. That's coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. Celtics and Bruins are both off tonight. Three motels in the state have had to pay more than $65,000 to dozens of employees to settle allegations that they withheld sick time pay from their workers. Investigators found one particular employee was owed more than $30,000. According to the state's attorney general's office, the hotels involved were the Worcester City Motel in Shrewsbury and the Red Roof Inns in Auburn and Sutton. The owners of the motels were also cited for violations. Damp this evening, but turning dry and staying pretty cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Then tomorrow could be overcast to start. Sunshine later in the day. Temperatures reaching the low 50s tomorrow. 48 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Jim O'Connell is not a saint. Don't even try calling him that. He's a Harvard-trained doctor, and to thousands of people who are homeless in Boston, he's a savior on the street. In 1985, O'Connell was in line for a coveted fellowship, but he took a detour. He was asked to help build a program to provide health care for people who were homeless in Boston. He'd only do it for a year, he thought. Almost four decades later, he and his team are still at it, and they've revolutionized the delivery of health care to the homeless community. We think of ourselves primarily as like old-time country doctors working in a very urban setting. It's bringing the best in medicine to some of the people who've been left most excluded. O'Connell and the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program are the subject of a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder. Kidder shadowed O'Connell for five years. The book is called Rough Sleepers, an old British term for people who live on the street. As you get to know them, where they live, what they're struggling with, what their stories are, and they get to know you. It's a two-way street here. There's something about the dialogue and the relationship that happens there. You get swallowed in a way by it. And the people you're serving really, really need those skills that you've learned, and they're really grateful for it. That's Tracy Kidder. We spoke with him and Jim O'Connell in our studio. What you're really doing is, I'm not sure you're supposed to use this term anymore, is practicing medicine 
in the world's richest country, but the third world part of it. It's a part of the country that many people don't even want to imagine exists here. But O'Connell was thrust right into it. He was assigned to create the program at the Pine Street Inn Shelter in Boston. Some nurses already had been running a health clinic there for years. They set O'Connell straight on day one. They told him to put away his stethoscope, slow down with his patients, and get busy doing something he'd never expected, soak the feet of shelter guests. Here's how Tracy Kidder describes it in the book. Foot soaking in a homeless shelter. The biblical connotations were obvious, but for Jim, what counted most were the practical lessons, the way this simple therapy reversed the usual order, placing the doctor at the foot of the people he was trying to serve. As a doctor in training, he'd spent most of his time telling patients what he thought, saying, we need to get that blood pressure down or I'm concerned about the results of your kidney tests. This new approach was entirely different, and he began to realize it was much more effective clinically, and foot soaking was the perfect way to begin. Did you wonder, Jim, why you were doing this, the foot soaking? I mean, there are practical reasons, because people who are homeless have significant problems with their feet, and that can affect other health issues. But it's more than that. Well, I mean, I think real honestly, I was overwhelmed and kind of discouraged that I had chosen the wrong way to spend my year for a while. (laughs) You know, and soaking feet is pretty smelly, and, you know, there's a lot in it. But I kept watching the nurses doing it so devotedly. And as I took care of more people, I started to pick up exactly on what Tracy just had written that, you know, there's something about being at the foot of the person you're serving. You're out of their personal space. It's something very soothing for them. And we started to realize that caring for the feet is kind of an entry into the soul. And I could give you one example of this man man who, you know, I had seen in the emergency room at Mass General dozens and dozens of times, and he suffered from a pretty terrible paranoid schizophrenia. He had terribly swollen feet, so we actually needed two buckets, one for each foot rather than one. And he, you know, just didn't say anything to me for about a month. And then finally, after about six weeks, he looked down at me and he said, hey, I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. And it was like the first person in the clinic that acknowledged I was a doctor, right? And I lit up. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, what the hell are you doing soaking feet? And I said, you know, I don't really know, but I'm doing whatever the nurses tell me to do. And he looked at me and said, you're a smart man. I do the same thing. And then a week or two later, he asked me for some medicine to help him sleep. And that was the beginning of a pathway to get him on all the medicines that we had spent literally 25 years at Mass General saying he was utterly resistant to take. The program expanded to other shelters. It opened hospital-based clinics and a headquarters with primary medical and dental care, also a medical respite facility. Most importantly, O'Connell says, the program brought compassion and health care directly to people on the streets. He visits people in parks by day and rides on a Pine Street outreach van by night, offering hot chocolate, soup, socks, a ride to a shelter, and someone to listen. And I had to learn to do all the things that I think professionally we didn't do because they were kind of boundary issues. Have coffee with people, listen to them, and talk to them about yourself. I talked to Tracy. It reminds me much. I spent a lot of years bartending. It reminded me of being a bartender. <laughs> Most people, you know, have amazing stories to tell and are anxious to tell it, but only if they feel safe. And so our job was to make them feel safe. I have a quick way to summarize this that Jim told me, actually. He said, you know, in med- medical school we were taught be friendly but not a friend. And then he added, but if we took that approach with this population, this homeless population, we would get nowhere. So it, a system of friends is really what they've developed. It's quite remarkable. 
Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program provides services to about 10,000 people every year, even the ones who find housing. O'Connell says he's always been drawn to people who are struggling. His mother had bipolar disorder and spent time away from him growing up when she was hospitalized. As a kid, he couldn't make things right for her. And as a doctor, he can't make things right for all his patients either. I can think of two women that we saw in the van the other night who have both been sleeping on the streets for 35 to 38 years, despite everything we're doing. And I keep thinking, if that was my mother, you know, what would I do? How do you maintain that sense of patience and and mission when it seems as if somebody doesn't want the help if they have a certain mental illness, they may not be disposed, predisposed to taking the kind of help that you're offering? Uh, Some people may be outright hostile. I'm sure you have dealt with and seen absolutely everything. How do you stay after them? Do you ever, I don't want to say give up on some people, but but, uh, how do you stay the course? I'm not so sure we analyze that well enough, but I do know that we rarely give up on anyone and that we've had a long enough history of caring for folks that we realize that it takes time and that some people will fire us and then come back and fire us again and then come back. I think there was a cardinal rule that I've worked with all of our staff is that you can never take anything they say personally. If you take it personally, it becomes really soul-wrenching. Jim doesn't lose his temper. You know, in a way, you can sum up all of this in, in that great line from Rousseau, which is, you know, what wisdom can you find that is greater than kindness? It works. It really works, even with people who are really floridly demented, I think. I've I've seen it work. Some of that anger I put down to, it's on us. You know, it's the system that is, you know, whatever they didn't get in school and whatever they didn't get at home or whatever happened to them, the anger for that is really what we're seeing. It's not at any of us. It's at the system and the structural things that put them there. And you have to deal with that system all the time because regardless of, of how much you do, even how much support you have from the city and the state, there are still things that are lacking and working against your efforts. And I wonder how you deal with that, because you have to, you know, encounter city officials, state officials all the time. And there are things, including COVID, including HIV when you first started, lack of affordable housing that just seem bigger and bigger all the time. And I wonder how you deal with those things. It's a complicated question, Lisa, and I I would say I would go down two paths. I think we learned a long time ago that our job, the, our niche, was to provide the best care we could to people who were experiencing homelessness you know, or had been homeless a long time and were now in housing. And then you start to realize that as a doctor and as a nurse, we can take care of people, but we're not really good at changing society. And then if we worry about that, it burns us out in a hurry. So we had to learn to let some of that go. Now, the other side of that is we work in a city that has been incredibly creative in coming up with the housing that it can do. I think everybody acknowledges to scale it to what we need is still a long way to go. Somebody's going to really tackle this major problem of how do you get enough housing with enough support that people need to stay fundamentally in housing. Jim McConnell and Tracy Kidder, thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, Lisa, thank you for this opportunity. It's great to see you. Tracy Kidder's book about Dr. Jim O'Connell and how he and his team care for people who are homeless in Boston is called Rough Sleepers. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. 
clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Prepare for a successful career with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. The program exceeds state licensure requirements, and the GRE is not required. Now accepting applications for fall, bgsp.edu. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Coming up, Germany's military revamp after nearly a year after the German chancellor announced a $100 billion boost for the country's military. We take a look at the armed forces there and the industry that depends on their survival. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, January 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, what's daily life like on the International Space Station, say, on the holidays? You know, on Christmas Eve, we made pizza, and it turned out much better than we had expected. So we definitely overate on Christmas Eve. Updates from 250 miles above Earth coming up. It's been eight years since a group of students in Mexico went missing. Officials say they're dead, but their parents believe they may still be alive. Nobody knows the truth, so how we know what is the truth? The time is 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The top U.S. military official, General Mark Milley, has held his first face-to-face meeting with his Ukrainian counterpart. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the two met to discuss the next steps in Ukraine's war with Russia. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the Pentagon, speaks often with the top Ukrainian military officer, General Valery Zaluzhny. But the generals had never met in person until these talks in eastern Poland, near the western border of Ukraine. Few details emerged, but there are many pressing issues. The U.S. continues to arm and train Ukrainians who face repeated missile strikes from Russian forces attempting to knock out Ukraine's electricity grid this winter. Also, there's widespread speculation that Ukraine or Russia, or both, are planning new military offenses in the near future. Greg Myrie, NPR News. President Biden and Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte held wide-ranging talks at the White House today, including Dutch concerns about the new U.S. restrictions on exporting chip-making technology to China. As NPR's Emily Fang explains, Biden wants Dutch support to limit China's efforts to control the world production of very valuable semiconductor chips. You just cannot make some of the most advanced types of semiconductors without the Dutch. Specifically, you need one Dutch company called ASML. 
This company has developed pretty mind-bending technology to project and print patterns at the nanometer level onto silicon wafers. And China wants to buy that technology because they want to make their own cutting-edge semiconductor chips. And for that, you need Dutch machines. NPR's Emily Fang reporting. A new analysis of data from 15 cities in the U.S. reveals police response times are getting longer. As NPR's Martin Costi reports, the change is most noticeable in the larger cities. There's no official national tracking of response times, but some cities publish their local numbers, which have now been compiled by crime statistics analyst Jeff Asher. Most of them show wait times growing. Not that much in some smaller departments. New Orleans and Portland, though, both saw doubling of the emergency response times from 2019 to 2022, suggesting that there are places that have really significant issues with their response times. Police departments have had trouble recruiting new officers for a number of years, and retirements increased dramatically around the time of the George Floyd protests. Some departments are trying to shift more work to civilian staff, but that process has yet to catch up with overall staffing shortages. Martin Costi, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow down 391 points. That's down 1.1 percent. The Nasdaq gained 15 points. The S&P 500 down 8. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Flu cases in Boston are steadily declining. The number of infections confirmed last week is now down to just over 100. That number was near 1,000 a month ago. According to the Boston Public Health Commission, the city is still experiencing high levels of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19 and RSV. Some Western Massachusetts municipal leaders are hopeful Governor Moore Healy will prioritize visiting their region. That's after a new report came out on former Governor Charlie Baker's visits to communities across the state. Alden Bourne has more. Baker made 45 official public appearances in Springfield during his eight years in office. That's according to the Boston Globe and is the highest number among Western Mass cities and towns. Further down the list was Westfield with seven visits. Mayor Michael McCabe says such appearances make a difference. It's being able to actually understand what's going on on a local level to be able to see it. Amy Wong is chair of the select board in Worthington. She says former Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito did visit several times, but Wong was completely disappointed Baker did not. I think to a large extent we're ignored. We're regarded as not being important because we don't bring that many votes. Wong says she's hopeful Worthington will get better attention from Governor Healy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The Melrose School Committee is set to vote this week on the tentative contract with the Teachers Union. The deal averted a strike by teachers that was set to begin today. The school committee vote is set for Thursday evening after the board goes into executive session to talk about details of the agreement. The mayor of Melrose calls it a good deal that would make significant investments in teacher salaries. And the Cambridge nightclub Man Ray is staging a comeback. Almost 20 years after its closure, the historic underground club will reopen tomorrow night. Chris Ewan is the club's resident DJ. He says Man Ray provided an important space for a variety of music and subcultures. There are a lot of people for whom Man Ray was a very special place. And it seems like we'll be able to provide something that they haven't been able to find in other nightclub experiences. The new club is located in Central Square in Cambridge. 
In the forecast, heavy on the clouds this evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures overnight about 35 degrees. Could rise all the way to 51 degrees tomorrow with gray skies in the morning, some sunshine by the afternoon. And then on Thursday, the rain could return. Temperatures pulling back to just about 40. 48 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The German government today announced a new defense minister to replace its last one who resigned yesterday after a year of missteps. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February, Germany's security apparatus has been under increased scrutiny. Wir müssen deutlich mehr investieren in die Sicherheit unseres Landes. Just days after the war began, Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced a $100 billion boost to upgrade and strengthen his country's military. Has that extra money helped? NPR's Rob Schmitz has traveled the country to find out. I was promised gunfire, howitzers, and soldiers in action. But when I arrived at the Baumholder military base in southwest Germany, I'm told there won't be any soldiers firing guns. The howitzers, though, are waiting for us. There they are, barrels aimed at low, dark clouds showering rain on the pastoral landscape below. A soldier approaches. There's a delay, he says. The wind and the rain mean the self-propelled howitzer 2000s need to adjust their positions. The soldier, Lieutenant Ron, stares into the rain, relaxed. His face, all the way down to the tips of his beard, is lathered in green and black paint. Before he joined the army, he competed for the national judo team. It was the first time I wore the German eagle on my chest, and it made me proud. I wanted a job that would make me equally proud where I could still wear the eagle. He found that in the Bundeswehr, Germany's army. Back in the Cold War, the Bundeswehr was well-funded, one of the world's strongest militaries. All men were required to serve either in the military or the civilian corps when they turned 18. But after the fall of the Berlin Wall and reunification, government after government shipped away at the Bundeswehr. Conscription was eliminated, and it became harder for leaders to justify a big military in a new era of peace and rebuilding. The Bundeswehr's reputation fell. Its history, often associated with Germany's troubled past, was reassessed. Lieutenant Ron says being a soldier in Germany is not like being a soldier in America. Our history makes us hesitant, afraid of taking the wrong step or assuming the wrong role that could be misunderstood. When I'm on the train in uniform, some people thank me, but plenty of people look at me with contempt. And after Russia invaded Ukraine, he says life inside the Bundeswehr changed. It's changed our motivation. It makes you think more each time you say goodbye to your family that it could be the last time. It's suddenly more real. That's as close as Lieutenant Ron is allowed to approach the war. We're here to report a story on the Zeitenwende, Chancellor Schultz's so-called turning point for Germany's military. But Bundeswehr press officers order us not to talk about it, deeming it too political. They also don't allow Lieutenant Ron to use a surname. They did promise shooting howitzers, though, and after an hour in the rain, we're still waiting. Over Lieutenant Ron's radio, officers say it'll be a while. His radio, the SEM 8090, is the Bundeswehr standard. These olive green metal radios are installed in all of the German military's vehicles, tanks, you name it. I think everybody who spent time in the Bundeswehr has almost an emotional relationship with the SEM, the good old big green SEM. 
Nico Lange, a former German soldier, has fond memories of the SEM radio. So do many others. That's because the German military has been using the analog system since the early 1980s. It hasn't swapped it out for the now standard encrypted digital systems used by most modern militaries. In fact, the German military recently signed a special contract with a French company to continue to make the 1980s-era radio system. In 2021, it ordered 30,000 of them for a total bill of more than half a billion dollars. The question is, why is it even necessary? And it is necessary because the process of having real battlefield digitalization, modern digital equipment that is there already in other armed forces, it takes far too long in Germany. Lange now heads the Zeitenwende initiative at the Munich Security Conference after serving as chief of staff in Germany's defense ministry. Lange says Germany's military is stuck with an outdated communication system because procuring new equipment takes too long. And I mean, it's it's also embarrassing for German soldiers if they are coming to an exercise or into common missions with armed forces of other NATO countries and ours are coming with those dinosaur radios. And it's not just radios. Konstantin Wismann, author of Germany's Rubbish Army, says German troops are stuck with poor equipment because of one agency with a very long name, the Federal Office for Equipment, Information Technology and Use of the Federal Armed Forces. But they are not very well known to be efficient. And as General once told me, that's the most bureaucratic organization in Germany. So even for something basic like a new rucksack, the order has to run through up to 12 different offices. When you consider that this office is also in charge of procuring bigger ticket items like tanks and fighter jets for Germany's military, says Wismann, you begin to understand the overall scope of Germany's problem. And he says it's a problem that'll not suddenly disappear with a sudden boost in spending. I think there are many, many operational problems and bureaucratic problems within the Bundeswehr, the whole procurement of weapons has to be overhauled, and that has not happened yet. Wismann's not the only one hoping for an overhaul. On a track outside of Munich, Knut Peters watches a tank accelerate around a curve before its tracks seem to glide over a series of speed bumps. The tank comes around with a speed of more than 50 kilometers per hour, uh, now takes a full circle, 180 degrees, then 360, and gets back to us. Peters works for Krauss Mafia Wegmann, otherwise known as KMW, one of Germany's largest weapons manufacturers. Yeah, this is just a test. Uh, so uh, if you push it hard, you can go up to uh, even 75 kilometers per hour. Peters' team is testing a Leopard 2 tank, Europe's answer to the American Abrams tank. The Leopard has been in the news since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, under the banner Free the Leopards. The German government has repeatedly refused to send these state-of-the-art tanks to Kyiv. Peters politely declines to comment when I ask him about the controversy over this. Instead, he invites me for a ride in a Leopard. You're going to let me ride in, in a Leopard tank? I wasn't expecting this. Peters and I climb up on top of the tank and slide into two holes, standing on platforms inside the tank with our torsos sticking out. We have the turret in what we call a six o'clock position. So the gun is pointing to the rear of the vehicle and we're moving forward. In a combat situation, it will be 180 degrees different. Wow. After a couple of laps on the track, the leopard comes to a stop and Peters has something to say. Let me add one point, and that's very serious. This is a vehicle 
not designed to actually have fun. It's one of the most sophisticated weapons in the world. It's the best tank in the world. And its purpose is to protect our freedom. Back in his office, Petra says Chancellor Schultz's pledge of $100 billion for Germany's military ignited a process within KMW. It took us only days, like with other companies, to present a whole list of products uh, that we might be able to deliver to the German government. On KMW's list were Leopard tanks, self-propelled howitzers, and the Boxer, a modular vehicle that within minutes can be changed from an artillery weapon to a medevac vehicle. That list was delivered to Berlin last March. Regrettably, the uh, 100 billion special budget takes time to become effective. So we haven't seen a single euro yet uh, uh, this year from that budget. As of today, there has been no payments out of that yet. In other words, weapons manufacturers like KMW are waiting for the German government to order weapons just like German troops are waiting for their government to change their outdated radio communication system, or like Kyiv is waiting for Berlin to send leopard tanks to Ukraine. One starts asking the question, um, is the speed of how Germany is doing things the right speed when it comes to the changes that are dramatic in Europe and in the world, and it seems Germany is too slow? Nico Lange says it's been nearly a year since Olaf Scholz's Zeitzenwende speech, and in that time, his pledge to spend significantly more money on Germany's military has stalled and been watered down by politicians, much to the chagrin of the German public, who he thinks is ready to pay the bill for better security. The German public is ready. The German public is more ready than many people here in Berlin think or are ready themselves. At a market in Berlin, social worker Sabine Wüstner isn't sure, though. I'm completely against building up our army. The more weapons we have, the more possibility of war. But when Wüstner is reminded that there is already a war in Europe and then asked what if war spreads to this part of Europe, she reconsiders. Well, yeah, I read yesterday Germany only has enough munitions to last a day. So that makes me nervous. In my view, there shouldn't be any weapons. And if we were to stop producing them, war would end. But I also realize the world doesn't work this way. Germany's deputy minister of defense, Zimte Müller, agrees. After so many years of shortfalls, there's a need for everything. German military analysts agreed the Bundeswehr has been underfunded for so long that this new boost of funding may only succeed in bringing it up to the level of where it should be. From here on, Germany's leaders will need to promise far more funding if they want to get serious about defending the country from potential adversaries. I mentioned to Müller that Germany's military needs new radios, too. That's a very long story, but we have now a happy ending. Müller says Germany's parliament has just confirmed funding for new radios. Germany's military will finally have digitally encrypted communication systems after decades of waiting. Back at the Baumholder base, the waiting is still not over, as two self-propelled howitzers still have not begun their target practice. But then we're told it's finally going to start. After two single shots, a Bundeswehr press officer says, that's it, target practice is over. In the end, I only waited for a couple of hours in the rain. And that's pretty quick compared to how long Germans, Europeans, and the West in general have waited for Germany's government to bring its military into the 21st century. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, 
Baumolder, Germany. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, what's it like to live 250 miles above Earth? We'll check in with the International Space Station in about five minutes. And later, how decades of large-scale crop irrigation has caused drought in places such as parts of Kansas. These stories and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. In business, the Dow dropped more than a full percent today, 392 points, to close at 33,911. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent to close at 39.91. The Nasdaq pulled in more than a tenth of a percent to finish the day up at 11,095. Homeowners in Nantucket say they will halt a multi-million dollar construction project that's meant to curb beach erosion. They say it's doing just the opposite. The project began about a decade ago and involved the installation of underground tubes meant to keep sandy bluffs from eroding. The project led to years of lawsuits and debate on the island over how to best battle the impact of climate change. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Mainly cloudy tonight and dry temperatures in the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, sunny with uh, temperatures just about 51 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today's opening day at the New Mexico State Legislature got off to a jarring start. Well, actually, it's been a jarring few weeks after several Democratic state lawmakers and other elected officials had their homes hit by gunfire. Last night, police arrested the alleged mastermind behind these shootings. He was a failed candidate for the legislature. Alice Fordham with member station KUNM is in the state capital, Santa Fe, and joins us now. Hey, Alice. Hello. So we now know the person who allegedly planned these attacks also ran for office. What more do we know about him? Yeah, so 39-year-old Solomon Pena was a controversial figure even when he ran as a Republican candidate last year. The Albuquerque Journal reported his opponent sued him to stop him running because he'd served seven years in prison after a conviction for stealing large amounts of goods from retail stores. Now, that suit was unsuccessful, but he did lose the, at that election in the city of Albuquerque. And following that loss, he posted on social media that he didn't accept defeat, and the Albuquerque police say he showed up at the homes of local officials with documents claiming to prove that the election was fraudulent. Now, New Mexico does have a loud contingent of people who question election processes, but what mm -hmm. allegedly happened was an enormous escalation. Wait, so what exactly are police saying that Pena did here? 
So he's alleged to have contacted four different men in Albuquerque, provided them with weapons and paid them to shoot at the homes of two Democratic county commissioners and two state legislators, also Democrats, on at least one occasion riding along and firing or, or trying to fire a weapon himself. The police say they have evidence linking bullet casings to weapons found in at least one vehicle belonging to Peña and evidence from cell phones and electronic records and surveillance video and multiple witnesses, including at least one who was part of the conspiracy. They say that Peña communicated the addresses he wanted targeted over the phone and, and they have records of that. Wow. What's been the reaction to all of this? Like, how are Democratic leaders in New Mexico responding to the arrest? Well, actually, today I spoke with Senator Linda Lopez, whose home was targeted earlier this month. She's starting her 27th year in the legislature Mm. today, and she says she's seen a lot, but on a personal level, she was shaken. She said she heard the shots at night and at the time told her children they must be fireworks, but then in the morning woke up to see what looked like bullet holes in her bedroom. And here's what she said happened next. Then I went over to my daughter's room, which is next to mine, and saw the holes in her room. And in all honesty, if she had been awake playing like she normally does, as most kids are on their tablets, uh, there would be a very different outcome. And that to me is, I think, what hurt me and, um, you know, as mom, is something that you don't want to go through. And Lopez said on a personal level, a number of Republican colleagues had contacted her to express sympathy and and horror. But she did say that if Peña was indeed behind the attacks, he's a party member. And to her, this speaks to a need for the party to have serious conversations about election denial. Yeah. Well, what about Republicans in the state? What are they saying publicly right now? Well, the House Minority Leader Ryan Lane issued a statement condemning the violence and particularly the fact that a person with a criminal conviction was able to get and use a firearm. But Republican leaders haven't yet addressed the possible political element to this. The Democratic mayor of Albuquerque, Tim Keller, called the alleged actions politically motivated. And so far, Republicans haven't really commented on that. And real quick, what's next for this person who was arrested last night? He's due to have his first court appearance tomorrow afternoon. That was Alice Fordham of KUNM reporting from Santa Fe. Thank you, Alice. Thanks so much for having me. Depending on where you are in the world, the International Space Station could be zipping over your head as you hear this. The space-based science lab orbits about 250 miles above the planet. An NPR shortwave podcast recently talked with NASA astronaut Josh Cassida, who's up there right now. He maintains the station, runs experiments, and does the occasional spacewalk. There was a point on our first spacewalk where we were out at the very far edge of the space station and then actually had to go around that edge and kind of hang off of the space station. And I remember thinking, well, this is it. This is the line. This is the end of humanity. It stops here, and I need to go just past it. Shortwave scientist-in-residence Regina Barber takes it from here. NPR, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for voice Recently, I got to do something I'd only dreamt of. Talk to an astronaut who's hanging out on the International Space Station, that global party house and space lab orbiting Earth 16 times a day. Station, this is Regina Barber with NPR Shortwave Podcast. How do you hear me? Hi, Regina. I've got you now. I've got you loud and clear. How me? Yeah, you sound great. I want And the biggest know. question of all for a day in the life on the space station? Astronaut food! which in my book is definitely as important as all the science. Uh, We do share a lot of different uh, foods when we can. You know, on Christmas Eve, we made pizza, slicing really thin slices of Romano to put on uh, on a pizza crust with some sauce, and it turned out much better than we had expected. So we definitely overate on Christmas Eve. Since we're a science podcast, we want to know, like, what science is happening on the ISS. 
at any one time, there are literally hundreds of experiments going on. And so we are essentially the eyes and ears and hands of the researchers on the ground as we hop from one experiment to the next, as well as juggling uh, that maintaining of the space station job. But yes, uh, we are currently right now uh, growing uh, dwarf tomatoes. We just started that, I want to say, two weeks ago, and they are already taken off. What's really interesting there is we're using a variety of different lighting and soil conditions so that we can optimize that uh, for future uh, missions. So what is the biggest challenge with uh, growing these plants in very low gravity? You know, the first time I took these out um, and essentially started the process, they come up in pillows of uh, different kinds of soil. And I think it's containing that soil. You know, it doesn't take much to have just a little bit uh, of a hole there, and then the the soil starts coming out. And so I had to be a little bit proactive and on making sure that stuff just didn't get all over the cabin. Um, As you can imagine, uh, it can get to be a mess in a hurry. (laughs) Next up, let's talk about physics, because I'm guessing that may be what you're most excited about since we're both physicists. What kind of physics experiment are you doing up in the ISS and what are you most excited about? My favorite one uh, is the alpha magnetic spectrometer. Uh, It's a big detector that's on top of the space station and what it's doing is it's just sifting cosmic rays, looking for signatures of antimatter and dark matter. And you know, it's gotten some really exciting uh, physics results in that we found this excess of positrons, which uh, as you know, as a physicist, You know, when you find something that's unexpected, it's a signature potentially of new physics. And that is always exciting in our line of work. Wow. And I wanted to ask you about your spacewalk. Like, I just watched you go on a spacewalk recently, seven hours long. Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah, it is uh, the coolest and somehow the dumbest thing that human beings do. You're out there thinking, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe this is what we're doing. You've got your head down and you're working and you take a peek at the backdrop and, you know, it just doesn't feel real. It's just amazing to see that gorgeous planet going below us. There's a point where your brain just for a half second says, no, I'm not doing this. We're putting our foot down. We're not doing this. Um, But, you know, you you see it, you take your path and uh, you, you fall back on your training and you know all the people on the ground are making it happen and it's, It's an amazing, amazing machine to be a part of. This has been amazing. Dream come true. Thank you so much, Josh. Regina, the thanks are all mine. That was Regina Barber of NPR's shortwave podcast talking with NASA astronaut Josh Cassida. You can check out their full conversation on the podcast Shortwave. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In sports, Celtics and Bruins both have the night off tonight. In the forecast, other than a few leftover showers early tonight, it should be mainly dry. Temperatures in the mid-30s, lots of clouds up above. Tomorrow should be the mildest day of the week and fortunately the sunniest as well, although the sun could hold off uh, to the second half of the day, highs reaching 51. Then for Thursday, back to the clouds, eventually some rain, a lot cooler, around 40 degrees tops. This is 90.9 WBUR, 48 degrees now in the Boston area at 530. News headlines from NPR are coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony this Thursday and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org. You know, lots of people outside of China sort of assumed that when China would eventually decide to open up, that it would take 
three to six months. So as they lifted restrictions, they could have ensured that you had allowed the virus to play out, but sort of in not so fast uh, fashion. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is praising the Netherlands for staying the course and support for Ukraine. Together, we're stepping up our protection for democratic values across the world. And, uh, and we're, you know, uh, including standing strong with Ukraine. You've been very, very stalwart. And we look to you as well. President Biden hosted Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte at the White House today. The two discussed plans, along with Germany, to help Ukraine defend itself against Russian missile attacks by offering the Patriot missile defense system. But Rutte did not offer details on whether the Netherlands itself will send Patriot systems. Rutte simply said that the Netherlands is joining the effort. In Ukraine, funerals have begun for the more than 40 people who were killed in the Russian missile attack that destroyed an apartment building over the weekend. Authorities have called off the search for survivors. At least 20 people remain unaccounted for. A new NPR Ipsos survey finds that a majority of Americans say their lawmakers are guided more by donors and political concerns than the wishes of most Americans when legislating about abortion. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports. 58% of American adults surveyed said state lawmakers usually or almost always vote for abortion laws that represent the wishes of their donors and political base rather than the wishes of the public as a whole. A majority of both Republicans and Democrats expressed that opinion along with most independents. Two-thirds of respondents also said they felt U.S. Supreme Court justices were more guided by their political views than by an impartial reading of the law when making decisions about abortion. On that question, Democrats were most likely to say the justices were guided by their own politics. The NPR Ipsos survey comes just ahead of what would have been the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that guaranteed abortion rights until the court overturned it last summer. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The husband of a missing Cohasset woman is now charged with her murder. Norfolk County District Attorney Michael Morrissey says Brian Walsh was already being held on a half million dollars bail for misleading investigators in the case. He has pled not guilty to those charges and is currently being held at the Norfolk County House of Correction. The continued investigation has now allowed police to obtain an arrest warrant charging Brian Walsh with the murder of his wife. Police have not found the body of 39-year-old Anna Walsh. She's been missing since New Year's Day. The couple has three children. Brian Walsh is expected to be arraigned tomorrow. A former worker at a residential care facility in Northfield, New Hampshire, has been sentenced to prison for causing harm to children in his care. Thomas John Paul uh, Ball Poirier pleaded guilty to using drugs that were prescribed for his patients. Prosecutors say after he replaced the drugs, two of the children had severe behavioral reactions. Poirier was sentenced to two consecutive terms of two to four years in state prison. The Boston City Council voted unanimously last month to form a task force to look at reparations and reconciliation efforts for black Bostonians. And today on Radio Boston, NAACP president of Boston, Tanisha Sullivan, said one of the biggest components of that will be educational outreach. WBR's Chris Sitterick has more. 
Sullivan says before considering cash payments to descendants of enslaved people, it's necessary to dig into our complex history together. It is our hope that as a city, we'll be able to learn together about that history before we even get into a conversation about what reparations or repair may or may not look like. Sullivan adds that to truly understand the impact of slavery, you have to look beyond slave owners and examine the systems that help support its existence. It was also... Um, allowed to sustain and thrive, quite frankly, by those who enabled it. Um, you know, there's financing that was involved. Sullivan hopes the discussions that follow can bring everyone together in the end. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Sidrick. Healthcare workers at Faulkner Hospital in Jamaica Plain held a lunchtime walkout this afternoon to protest their wages. Hey, hey, ho, ho, no wages got to go. Personal care attendants of Faulkner earn $15.45 an hour. They've been negotiating for $5 more per hour since July. The hospital said in a statement it's trying to reach a fair agreement with workers. The next round of negotiations is set for Thursday. In the forecast, damp early tonight, but then turning dry, staying cloudy. Temperatures in the mid-30s overnight. Tomorrow, clouds to start. Sunshine due in later today. Should be a beautiful day tomorrow, eventually. Temperatures in the low 50s. And then Thursday, clouds. Rain once again, a little a bit chillier, down around 41 degrees. 47 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden. Based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Jury selection began today in Brooklyn for one of the men the U.S. had considered a partner in the war against drugs. Gennaro Garcia Luna, Mexico's former Secretary of Public Security, is accused of taking millions of dollars in bribes from drug cartels. Garcia Luna was arrested in December 2019. He is the highest-ranking Mexican official to ever face trial in the U.S. on drug trafficking charges. Maria Inahosa hosts a podcast about the case called USA versus Garcia Luna, and she's with us from outside the courthouse. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Hey, Ari. How are you? It's good to be with you. Uh, Good to have you here. This is not a typical drug kingpin story, right? This connects the dots to deep inside uh, the Mexican establishment to some pretty deep-seated corruption. Tell us about it. You know, Ari, that's kind of the narrative that the prosecution wants to put out there, right? That this is high levels of corruption in the Mexican government. This is a person, Genaro Garcia Luna, who was the right-hand man for the Mexican president at the time, Felipe Calderón. Um, but was also, the accusation goes, was working for El Chapo. But, you know, Ari, he was also working with the United States. He was working with the DEA. In fact, one of the things that Genaro Garcia Luna loves to talk about is the fact that he has all of these commendations and photographs with people like Hillary Clinton. And he says, look, I was trusted. So interestingly for us, uh, my colleague Benile Ramirez and I, For us, this is a broader case. It's not just that typical, oh, Mexican corruption for us in our podcast, USA versus Garcia Luna. It really is 
pulling back a little bit more and saying, well, what is the role of the United States as well? And interestingly, mm. today, Ari, that was something that came up. The yeah, tell us about of, what happened in court today. Yeah, so the number of, we all day we were um, listening to jurors. And interestingly, Ari, the number of jurors who were saying things like the war on drugs has failed, you know, drugs should be legalized, marijuana should be legalized, uh, you know, this war on drugs just doesn't ever end. That, I think, is very different than, for example, what was happening when El Chapo was put on trial. So it's a different kind of vibe here. And many Mm. of those jurors, you know, some of them were excused, others are going to be in the jury pot. And we expect the jury selection to probably continue through the end of this week. Is there any sense of whether the government knew how corrupt this guy was while they were working with him? And that's the $64 million question, right? Because there were doubts about Garcia Luna all the way back in 2002. And so the big question that we're raising is, how is it possible that somebody in Mexico, where the DEA is supposed to be distrustful of everyone, how is it possible that they didn't see the signs? How is it possible that they kept on working with Garcia Luna very closely? And I think this is one of the things that Garcia Luna's team is going to put out here, which is, look, he was trusted by the U.S. government, and that's the most important thing in terms of his credibility. But it's a very interesting trial, Ari, and what we did in our podcast is, you know, a lot of people are like, we don't want to talk about it, Chapo, we're done with this, which is why we actually put a little bit of humor, and today... In court, we actually saw Garcia Luna, who, by the way, looks like a grandfather now. He's all gray. He's a little chubbier. He does not look like a, a powerful, you know, angry man. Uh, he looks like a grandfather, like from wow. a, you know, so, so I think that that's something that the, the whole demeanor yeah. um, of what's going to come is going to be super interesting. And, and we're just saying, hey, this is a much bigger case yeah. than one corrupt Mexican government official. That's Maria Inajosa, founder of Futuro Studios and co-host of USA versus Garcia Luna. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. The Great Plains are the nation's breadbasket, but after decades of irrigating crops, the underground water that powers large-scale farming in western Kansas is quickly drying up. David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports on a plan to try to preserve more of what's left. Fly west over Kansas and you'll see the prairie transform into a patchwork of green circles. Mile after mile of geometric crop fields spun into the near-desert landscape by wells that tap water hidden beneath the dry surface. For more than six decades, one of those wells showered the grain on Travis Leonard's family farm. This well's been... But as drought intensified this fall, the well began pumping up sand instead of clear water and he shut it down for the last time. This was his final hurrah. His farm used to have 16 wells like this one. It's now down to three. In a decade or two, he predicts this part of southwest Kansas won't have any irrigation wells left. That day's coming. It's happened to a lot of people already. It will happen to everybody eventually. The region's main water source, the Ogallala Aquifer, is being sucked dry and farmers and local leaders can't agree on how to save it without choking the livelihoods of the people who live here. 75 miles north of Leonard's dry well, dozens of farmers gather to discuss a possible answer. It's a new plan to cut irrigation in four counties by 10 percent. 
Now, even that 10% cut won't be enough to stop the aquifer's decline. But Katie Durham, who leads the local groundwater district, says it's a vital first step. This is do or die. I mean, without water, these communities, this infrastructure, it wouldn't be here. Under the plan, a local board, not the state, would make water conservation decisions. That doesn't mean it's all kumbaya. One of the farmers at the hearing, Cameron Shea, says many irrigators are still wary of any water limits. It has to be done smartly. It can't just be done by a bunch of activists who come in and don't know what they're talking about and do radical things. Although farmers use irrigation across the Midwest, it's especially critical in places like western Kansas that don't get much rain. And more than 90 percent of all the water used in this area goes to grow crops. But the H2O buffet is closing down, and the climate is heating up. Kansas State University researcher Vishali Sharda says if western Kansas keeps irrigating as it has, the science is clear about what happens next. There is no guessing. We know that the aquifer is depleting, right? It's depleting at an unsustainable pace. But remember, using that water is what built the region's economy. Take southwest Kansas. It relies more on irrigation than anywhere else in the state. And plans to restrict pumping there haven't gotten very far. Mark Rood, who leads the local groundwater district, says strict rules to save the aquifer don't make sense if they come at the expense of the economy. What we're trying to preserve here is not only the community as a whole, but the business strategy, the overall viability of that community. But in other parts of Kansas where there already are irrigation restrictions, results are promising. Two years ago, farmers in a county near the proposed new limits cut their irrigation by 25 percent. This field didn't receive any irrigation water. It was That's where Brian Box sits in a combine, harvesting his last cornfield of the year. Drought left its mark here. His combine has to skim the ground to reach the short corn plants out the front window. But he was still able to grow something. Regardless of whether somebody likes it or not, we've got to do something to extend the life of this aquifer or it's not going to be there. He says adjusting to a future with less water may not be painless, but in western Kansas, it's a matter of survival. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Leota, Kansas. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is regularly in the spotlight with her extremist far-right rhetoric and ties to former President Donald Trump. But in the new year and the new Congress, she's getting attention for a different reason, her vocal support for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler has more on Greene's new approach to Washington. When the first day of Congress adjourned and lawmakers went spilling into the halls of the Capitol without being sworn in, most Republicans were, understandably, frustrated. It's not a popularity contest. It's not who we like and who we don't like. Because you want to know something? That is the failure of Republicans. About 90% of the GOP conference voted for Kevin McCarthy three times that day, so that sentiment wasn't a surprise. But the speaker was. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. The Republicans are the party of never. And it's always never when they don't like somebody. And that's how we failed. That's how we failed the country. Green is one of the most prolific fundraisers and attention getters in the Republican Party, and not always for good reasons. 
Democrats stripped her of committee assignments for a cornucopia of comments that dabbled in degrees of conspiracy theories, anti-Semitism, and other incendiary rhetoric that she has occasionally apologized for. So I just wanted to come here today and, and say that I'm truly sorry for offending people with remarks about the Holocaust. There's no comparison. After Republicans regained control of the chamber by the narrowest of margins in November, Green's unwavering support for Speaker McCarthy, alongside her unflinching commitment to ultra-conservative policies, places her into a new nexus of power. Here's Green on Fox News. I have the support of the base, and I keep telling everyone here in Washington, this is what the American people want. And it was easy for me to get on board with this agenda because I'd see the conference come around the same things. She's got the year of McCarthy. She's got the year of the former president, who is still arguably the leader of the party. You know, she has a, a lot of voters nationwide who like her. That's Jim Hobart, a Republican pollster and partner at Public Opinion Strategies. He says there's a bit of a power vacuum in the Republican Party right now, especially in the House, where it only takes a few people within the ranks to make or break legislation. John Mason Long is a Georgia-based Republican strategist who says it's smart for Green to choose the make option by supporting McCarthy, given the current dynamics where the House needs the entire conference on the same page. What she knows she has to do is be an effective legislator and that's why she's got a great relationship with Speaker McCarthy. And then she's got a great relationship with the other side of the party, that more Freedom Caucus side of the party. So what's changed from the last Congress to this one? Is it the Republican Party, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or a little bit of both? Here's Jim Hobart again. I don't know necessarily if Marjorie Taylor Greene has changed. She's just changed the tone of the way she talks about things. She's changed who she is talking to. And she's changed the focus in those conversations. It's possible that Green's rise in power and prominence are the beginnings of a greater shift within the party as some seek to merge the pro-Trump fervor with actual governing. Or it could merely be a byproduct of this particular moment in this particular majority in this particular Congress. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, COVID pandemic and the distortions in our perceptions of time. And ahead at 7 o'clock tonight on WBUR, childhood obesity is an epidemic in the U.S. Some new guidelines call for family counseling, early treatment with drugs, or even surgery. Childhood obesity tonight on On Point starting at 7 o'clock on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu slash events. The Celtics and Bruins are both off tonight in the forecast heavy on the clouds this evening and overnight. Temperatures about 35 degrees tonight. Could rise all the way to 51 tomorrow. Gray skies in the morning, but then sunshine eventually breaking through. And then for Thursday, the rain could return. Temperatures pulling back to about 40. 47 degrees now in Boston at 549. 
WBUR supporters include ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The pandemic did something strange to our sense of time. For some, it made time stand still. Looking at the clock and thinking, oh my God, it's still six hours until the kids are going to go to bed. For others, time sped up. It moved slow in the beginning and quicker in the end. How did COVID distort our perception of time? NPR's Yuki Noguchi explains as part of our series, Finding Time, a journey through the fourth dimension to learn what makes us tick. COVID lockdown introduced a grinding tedium to Ruth Ogden's days. It was like climbing a mountain that never ended. She had a newborn and two older boys home from school. The park next to their home in Manchester, England, remained chained shut. In the confines of their three-bedroom duplex, time stagnated. And it was absolute hell. And I kid you not, I could not believe there were 24 hours in the day. It dragged like a massive concrete rock behind me. It was horrendous. But now, with the pandemic receding, Ogden says it feels different. When I look back on it now, it seems like it didn't really happen. Like, I can't really remember anything about it. So in some ways, it seems quite short. Ogden is a psychologist at Liverpool John Moore's University when she isn't a harried mom. Over the pandemic, she surveyed people in different countries about their perception of time. The results show just how variable our sense of time can be. Time is incredibly flexible, and we all experience it in different ways. In Iraq, for example, she found people almost universally felt time slowed. But half of UK respondents felt it moved faster. In Argentina, younger, physically active women felt time passed faster than older men. Ogden says it's hard to pinpoint the root of those differences. Living in a war-torn area, under strict lockdown policies, or differing cultural attitudes toward time may be at play. Either way, she says, When life changes, different factors lead to differences in time experience in different cultures. At an individual level, though, the perception of time has a great deal to do with one's emotional state. And of course, the pandemic caused lots of upheaval there. Consider, for example, the experience of Arthur Wade Young III. Wade! I know him as Wade, our super-friendly mail carrier. Normally, Young keeps to a schedule. Every weekday around 3.30 p.m., he bounds toward my house with a navy blue satchel slung across his chest. For 12 years, he's walked this route of 530 homes in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Every day, every year, except in 2020. That first year of the pandemic dealt him multiple blows. Surgery on a torn knee ligament kept him sidelined from work. A few months before that, I had to have emergency surgery, I had to get my appendix taken out. 
He and his wife also separated. He worried constantly for his two school-aged daughters, and that wasn't all. I caught COVID about three times, actually. Comorbidities made his first bout of COVID scary. Okay, so you're only going through a divorce, a couple yeah. surgeries, yeah. a pandemic. Yeah, not uh, working. Not working, yeah, some yeah, financial yeah. troubles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sounds like a loads of fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> what made it worse, he says, was having too much time to ponder his anguish. Worrying about stuff every day. But I think that kind of slowed things down for me. You know, fear takes control of a lot of times. I asked Ed Miyawaki, a Harvard neurologist, how emotions like fear influence our sense of time. It's complex, he says. There is no one place in the brain that is involved in timekeeping. There is, for example, a place near the optic nerve that tracks time. That makes sense. We use light to sense time of day. And there are dopamine centers where we learn to anticipate rewards and the amygdala, which process memory and emotion. The cerebellum's involved in the timing of movement. There's a clock there. There's an emotional clock. There's a memory clock. All these kinds of clocks. But, Miyawaki says, they aren't synchronized. The brain has no master clock. There's just complex interplay among our senses that act on our sense of time. Miyawaki, who's also a psychiatrist, says sometimes you can even see the differences in someone's internal sense of time. He's treated severely depressed patients who move extremely slowly, almost like sloths, because their emotional state has so altered their timing. The idea that time is one monolithic thing is just wrong. So after decades of research, Miyawaki says he concludes our sense of time comes from something beyond the brain. The question is not just one of science, but also one of psychology, sociology, philosophy. That resonates with Ruth Ogden, the psychology professor in the UK. She says the pandemic alerted many of us to time's relationship to our sense of health and well-being. In fact, it seemed to call our attention to time itself. We are aware of time. We're aware of the fragility of time. and We're aware of what happens when your time to do the things you want is taken away from you. And I think that that is the real thing that will have changed, is how people value time. That holds true for Arthur Wade Young, my neighborhood mail carrier. He says recent difficult times made him a more spiritual man. I just prayed and that was just about it. Prayer. He became vegan and worked out, transforming his body and his health. He resumed working a year ago and got his rhythm back. But he feels the experience changed him permanently. You know, I just look at things different. It's like I kind of hit rock bottom, but I did. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was almost there, but I wasn't. But I, I appreciate things more. And he's changed how he spends his time. Make sure I'm doing something worth my time every day. You know, not taking anything for granted. Um, with all the people that were dying, you know, all around the world. Uh, I try to put more time into my kids, try to put more time into reading <laughs> and stuff like that. But stuff yeah. that makes him savor the moment. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Legendary Italian actress Gina Lollobrigida died yesterday in Rome. She was 95 years old. Nicknamed La Lolo, she made dozens of movies in the U.S. and Europe after World War II. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. Gina Lollobrigida melted the hearts of major stars in the 1950s and 60s. Humphrey Bogart, Frank Sinatra, Burt Lancaster. She was a voluptuous brunette with captivating brown eyes. In the 1968 comedy Buena Sera, Mrs. Campbell, Lollobrigida plays a woman who isn't sure which American soldier fathered her daughter during the war. Three 
Fathers? Yes, three fathers. How could such a thing happen? You weren't here during the war. You don't know how it was that last summer. Before working in film, she studied painting and sculpture in Rome. She also took singing lessons and dreamt of being an opera singer. That didn't happen, but she did star as one in a movie and said it wasn't dubbed. Lola Brigida embraced her role as a symbol of Italy, but she didn't think of acting as her life, as she told NPR in 1973. When I'm work, I'm work. When I'm out of the work, I want to feel a, a normal person. Later in life, Lola Brigida returned to visual arts, painting and photography, and she ran for political office. She recently told the Italian press she was determined to stay creative. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool, designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at progressivecommercial.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. A few leftover showers coming up. Should be dry tonight, though. Lows in the mid-30s. Then a pretty lovely day tomorrow, likely the mildest of the week and maybe the sunniest, although the sunshine could hold off until the second half of the day tomorrow. Highs reaching 51 degrees. Then for Thursday, back to the clouds, eventually some rain. Should be a lot cooler, only about 40 degrees tops. 46 degrees now in the Boston area at 559. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. China announced that for the first time in nearly six decades, deaths in the country outnumbered births last year. That is a larger percentage drop than births during the famine after Mao's Great Leap Forward. The shrinking Chinese population and the ramifications coming up, this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden met with the Dutch Prime Minister today to persuade the Netherlands to join tough restrictions on China's ability to acquire microchips and equipment. Also, Dr. Jim O'Connell makes house calls, but his patients have no homes, so he meets them on the streets, in parking lots, and on heating grates. We think of ourselves primarily as like old-time country doctors working in a very urban setting. It's bringing the best in medicine to some of the people who've been left most excluded. Jim O'Connell and author Tracy Kidder coming up in 20 minutes. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. After a week of evolving accounts from the White House about the classified documents found in President Biden's home, 
Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre is now referring questions elsewhere. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, there are many unanswered questions. Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters she's now deferring all questions to the White House Counsel's Office and the special counsel conducting the investigation. You guys can ask me this 100 times, 200 times if you wish. I'm going to keep saying the same thing. I hear your question. It's been asked. It's been answered. It's been noted. And we're just going to try to move on here. A spokesman for the White House Counsel's Office who did his own briefing didn't offer many answers either. This likely means that questions about how President Biden ended up with classified documents at his home and why it took so long to tell the public may not be answered until the special counsel completes his investigation and issues a report. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Jury selection has begun in a civil court case against Elon Musk, who's accused of hurting investors with a false tweet about taking Tesla private. And Pierce Camila Dominoski reports the judge is trying to assemble a neutral panel, which is tough for this particular defendant. It seems like pretty much everyone in America has some sort of opinion about Elon Musk, but just a few dozen people have to answer for them to a judge and some lawyers. One potential juror noted that Elon Musk had been, quote, off his rocker lately. Another called him talented but crazy, pointing specifically to his rampant tweeting habit. That habit is at the center of this court case. In 2018, Musk tweeted he had secured funding to take Tesla private, setting off a stock price roller coaster. A judge has ruled that the tweet was false. The jurors selected now will be tasked with deciding whether Musk knowingly lied and hurt investors. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. Wall Street ended the day mixed as disappointing bank earnings dragged down the Dow. NPR's David Gura has more. In the fourth quarter, Goldman Sachs did worse than Wall Street expected, and the bank's share price fell by more than 6 percent. CEO David Solomon called the quarter disappointing. Goldman's bread and butter is investment banking, and with high inflation and rising interest rates, that business has suffered. Last week, the bank laid off 6 percent of its staff. Morgan Stanley's share price was up after it exceeded forecasts thanks to gains in its wealth management business. And once again, Wall Street's attention turns to Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned the U.S. is on track to hit the debt ceiling on Thursday, and the government will have to start using what are called extraordinary measures to avoid a default. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And on Wall Street at the closing bell, the Dow was down 391 points. That's down 1.1 percent. The Nasdaq was up 15. The S&P 500 down 8. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. December was a record month for the gambling industry in Massachusetts, according to the latest revenue report from state regulators. Sam Hudzik reports. MGM Springfield is still well short of the jackpot it projected when regulators approved its license, but the casino appears to have found its footing, with revenues stabilizing at the end of last year. For the first time, MGM pulled in more than $22 million for three straight months. On the other side of the state, December was a huge month for Encore Boston Harbor. Fueled by table game receipts, Encore reported its highest monthly revenue since it opened, some $68 million. Combined with the slot machine revenue from Plain Ridge Park, gamblers lost $103 million to Massachusetts casinos in December, the most since the industry came online in the state in 2015. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sam Hudzik. The husband of the missing Cohasset woman, Anna Walsh, is now facing a murder charge. The Norfolk County District Attorney's Office announced the charge today. Brian Walsh is set to be arraigned tomorrow. He's already being held on a charge of impeding a law enforcement investigation following his wife's disappearance. She was last seen early New Year's Day. 
Six environmental activists are charged with trespassing and disorderly conduct after they were arrested early this morning while protesting the construction of an electrical substation in East Boston. Some of the activists were with the group Extinction Rebellion. They're calling on Governor Maura Healey to find a way to get Eversource to build the substation at nearby Logan Airport instead. After a contentious eight-year state approval process, construction began on the project last week. A Texas man has pleaded guilty in federal court in Rhode Island to his part in a romance scam. Fola Alabi was accused of romancing elderly women and cheating them out of more than $1.5 million. Federal prosecutors say he befriended the women online while he posed as a U.S. Army general stationed overseas. A Rhode Island woman tried to send him a check for $240,000, but her bank suspected fraud and notified police. Prosecutors say there are victims in 10 states. And Massachusetts is said to be one of the happiest places in the country. That's according to an analysis by prescription medicine advocacy group NiceRx. The organization found Massachusetts has a happiness score of 8.34 on a scale of 10. That is the third in the nation behind Hawaii and Connecticut. Nice RX find Massachusetts has the country's highest mean household income and one of the lowest poverty rates. In the forecast, staying cloudy overnight tonight should be relatively dry. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Then tomorrow, clouds to start. Sunshine could move in later in the day, possibly reaching the low 50s tomorrow with light breezes. Thursday, clouds and rain once again, a little bit chillier, down around 41 degrees. 46 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Chinese leader Xi Jinping often talks about the opportunities ahead for his country in the face of what he calls changes unseen in a century. Well, sometimes those changes create challenges for him, too. Within the last 24 hours, three pieces of news left many to wonder what's next for the world's second largest economy. Overnight, Beijing reported its population had declined for the first time in six decades. We'll hear more about that in a few moments. This morning, it confirmed its economic performance last year was among the weakest in the country's modern history. And today, President Biden has been meeting with the visiting Dutch prime minister in what analysts say is an intensifying effort to limit China's access to sophisticated technology from the Netherlands, as NPR's John Ruwich reports. At the center of it all is the Netherlands' biggest company. It's called ASML. This promo video gives a sense of what it does. What's the one thing the world should know about ASML? We create the future. ASML makes machines that make chips. There is a footprint of ASML in your life. and can be... ASML makes the world's most advanced lithography machines. Those are the devices that create cutting-edge microchips with transistors that are one ten-thousandth the width of a piece of hair, or even smaller. The Biden administration doesn't want Beijing getting its hands on the best microchips. Out of concern, they'll give China's military an edge. And in the fall, the administration introduced sweeping new rules restricting American entities from exporting to China those chips and the gear that makes them. U.S. government very much would like to get the, the European, in this case especially Dutch counterparts, to, to, to join the export controls. Risto Puhaka is with the company Tech Insights, which does semiconductor market analysis. And that's been kind of the main objective here and, and is the cause of the friction. Friction because the Dutch have been resistant. 
Their threat perception of China is different from that of the U.S., he says. And the market's a big one for ASML, even though it already withholds its best technology from China. Let me, let me put this way. Right now, ASML ships more machines to China than to the United States. So why would you stop doing business in China? That could be a problem for the Biden administration, says Graham Webster, a research scholar at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. The administration says it isn't pushing allies, but Webster says the effort only really works if all key players are on board. And if there's some leakage and if other key countries, specifically Japan, the Netherlands or Taiwan, um, are willing to play with China, this gives China the ability to create an alternative supply chain that's independent of the United States. Meanwhile, Beijing is doing its own lobbying. In November, Chinese leader Xi Jinping met Dutch Prime Minister Ruta and told him attempts to politicize economic and trade issues must be rejected. John Ruwich, NPR News. The sense of urgency in Beijing is palpable. The world's most populous country faces an uncertain economic future, and now demographic trends show the country's population is officially shrinking. That will have dramatic economic and geopolitical impacts in the long term. Here's NPR's Emily Fang. The last time China's population shrank was in 1960, and that was because of a man-made famine under the ruling Communist Party called the Great Leap Forward. Tens of millions of people starved to death. This time, China is shrinking again, not because significantly more people are dying, but because birth rates are dropping. According to official numbers, China's birth totals have plummeted by over 40 percent since the year 2016. This is Nicholas Eberstadt, a senior researcher at the Washington-based think tank American Enterprise Institute. That is a larger percentage drop than births during the famine after Mao's Great Leap Forward. We're seeing an absolutely seismic shock. That's something that usually only occurs in societies when there's a sudden convulsion from total war or an upheaval due to a terrible, terrible plague. A seismic shock because China's meteoric economic growth the last 40 years was hugely dependent on being a big populous country with lots of young workers. That gave them a big domestic market to sell to and a pool of cheap labor that could build cities and make goods for export. But anyone who's followed demographics in China has known for at least a decade that someday China's total headcount would drop. Just not this soon. Okay, to me, it's a no, it's a no surprise. That's Dr. Yi Fuxian. He's a researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And in the last few years, he's become kind of a demography whistleblower. He believes China's own data shows the population actually started shrinking in 2018 and that the state willfully inflated its numbers by more than 100 million people. At that, that time, the Chinese government was very angry with me. Angry at him because his predictions played into Beijing's fears that a decline in the working age population would make it hard to sustain its ambition to overtake the U.S. China's latest GDP data announced this week on the same day shows economic growth continues to slow even before the full effects of its looming demographic crunch have hit. At this point, you're probably wondering why China's birth rate has slowed so drastically. Uh, it's because of a, what, what's called an echo effect. Dr. Wang Feng is a sociology professor at the University of California, Irvine, and he explains birth rates were already falling in the 1970s, well before China imposed a one-child policy cap in all families. 
And now the people descended from those generations are also having fewer children. An echo from the past, though for new reasons. There is the drastic postponement of marriage uh, among young people. The, that change has accompanied this vast expansion in education, higher education, urbanization, and uh, changes in attitudes. The state has tried to incentivize having more children, but only between married heterosexual couples. And so far, it's had no luck. Statistics announced this week showed birth totals dropped another 10% this past year alone. Emily Fang, NPR News. Shakira is back, and on her new song, she is proudly single. All right, this is a full-on diss track aimed at her ex, a retired Spanish soccer star. The single went straight to the top of Spotify's Top 50 Global Chart. It hit 100 million views on YouTube in just under three days. NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento is here to explain what this has all been about. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, exactly, you know, just explain, like, why this song is making such waves right now. Yeah, so Shakira's last album came out in 2017. We haven't heard a ton of music from her over the years. She released two singles last year, but she is kicking 2023 into high gear. So this is a very, you know, this EDM house sound is kind of a departure from the Latin fusion vibes that we might be more familiar with, like, you know, Hips Don't Lie, or even the electro pop sounds of She-Wolf. Yeah, but this new sound, I think we can really credit Bizarra for, the Argentine producer. This is part of his YouTube series of collaborations with both emerging and high-profile artists. And, you know, he is only 24, but he consistently produces hits. Sorry, baby, I said rato. So working with him is a really good way for Shakira to put herself back on the map after all this time away. Yeah. And can we just be like really explicit about this? This is all aimed directly at Gerard Piquet. He and Shakira announced their split last summer after more than a decade together. They have two children. But what it feels like right now, at least publicly, Shakira is trying to say like, look, I, I'm not broken. This did not break me. Like, is that a fair way to characterize what she is saying right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a song where she's reclaiming her worth after a relationship that, you know, did not end well. Um, it stings even more because she's said publicly that she kind of put her career on the back burner to support him and his, and you know, and their family together. So she's fully roasting him on this track. She name drops him. She name drops his rumored new girlfriend. You know, she says she's out of his league and he traded a Rolex for a Casio. Let's listen. She's saying you left me with my mother-in-law as my neighbor, with the press at my door, and a debt with the treasury, which is literally alluding to her pending trial for tax fraud in Spain. Right. And then just the most killer line. You thought you hurt me, but you made me stronger. Women don't cry anymore. Women make money. That's right. <laughs> you know, she's just literally cashing in on this really painful breakup, and she's using a great song to do so. All right. Like, I'm happy for her, but I am curious, is, is this, like, <laughs> taking aim thing? Like, th is this a new thing for Shakira? 
actually kind of not at all. I mean, she became a star in Latin America in the 90s with these really biting, heartbroken songs. One of my favorite examples is Si Te Vas from her 1998 album, Donde Están Los Ladrones. I have always loved this song, but I've never understood the lyrics. It's pretty savage. She's literally saying to her boyfriend that if he leaves her, he will regret it and that he should not, you know, exchange her for pedazo de cuero. It's kind of a derogatory term that means a promiscuous woman. I mean, you know, she's always been pretty savage in her attacks. Uh -huh. It's really just the new song that has a new sound behind it. I love it. That is NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace, three real estate agents in three different markets tell us about how the housing market is shifting and what they see in the upcoming year. Marketplace starts at 6.30. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. The Dow dropped more than a full percent today, 392 points, to close at 33,911. S&P lost two-tenths of a percent to close at 39.91. The Nasdaq pulled in more than a tenth of a percent to finish the day up at 11,095. Vacant office space is at a historic high in the Boston area. The firm Colliers International says data show the vacancy rates in the city at about 17 percent. Looking ahead, Collier's calls 2023 a tenants market and says it's likely to remain so as the nation continues to deal with high inflation. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Lots of clouds around tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, clouds to start. Sunshine later could reach 51 degrees. 46 degrees now in Boston at 620. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Jim O'Connell is not a saint. Don't even try calling him that. He's a Harvard-trained doctor, and to thousands of people who are homeless in Boston, he's a savior on the street. In 1985, O'Connell was in line for a coveted fellowship, but he took a detour. He was asked to help build a program to provide health care for people who were homeless in Boston. He'd only do it for a year, he thought. Almost four decades later, he and his team are still at it, and they've revolutionized the delivery of health care to the homeless community. 
we think of ourselves primarily as like old-time country doctors working in a very urban setting. It's bringing the best in medicine to some of the people who've been left most excluded. O'Connell and the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program are the subject of a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Tracy Kidder. Kidder shadowed O'Connell for five years. The book is called Rough Sleepers, an old British term for people who live on the street. As you get to know them, where they live, what they're struggling with, what their stories are, and they get to know you. It's a two-way street here. There's something about the dialogue and the relationship that happens there. You get swallowed in a way by it. And the people you're serving really, really need those skills that you've learned, and they're really grateful for it. That's Tracy Kidder. We spoke with him and Jim O'Connell in our studio. What you're really doing is, I'm not sure you're supposed to use this term anymore, is practicing medicine in the world's richest country, but the third world part of it. It's a part of the country that many people don't even want to imagine exists here. But O'Connell was thrust right into it. He was assigned to create the program at the Pine Street Inn Shelter in Boston. Some nurses already had been running a health clinic there for years. They set O'Connell straight on day one. They told him to put away his stethoscope, slow down with his patients, and get busy doing something he'd never expected, soak the feet of shelter guests. Here's how Tracy Kidder describes it in the book. Foot soaking in a homeless shelter, the biblical connotations were obvious, but for Jim, what counted most were the practical lessons, the way this simple therapy reversed the usual order, placing the doctor at the foot of the people he was trying to serve. As a doctor in training, he'd spent most of his time telling patients what he thought, saying, we need to get that blood pressure down or I'm concerned about the results of your kidney tests. This new approach was entirely different, and he began to realize it was much more effective clinically, and foot soaking was the perfect way to begin. Did you wonder, Jim, why you were doing this, the foot soaking? I mean, there are practical reasons, because people who are homeless have significant problems with their feet, and that can affect other health issues, but it's more than that. Well, I mean, I think, real honestly, I was overwhelmed and kind of discouraged that I had chosen the wrong way to spend my year for a (laughs) while. You know, and soaking feet is pretty smelly and, you know, there's a lot in it. But I kept watching the nurses doing it so devotedly. And as I took care of more people, I started to pick up exactly on what Tracy just had written that, you know, there's something about being at the foot of the person you're serving. You're out of their personal space. It's something very soothing for them. And we started to realize that caring for the feet is kind of an entry into the soul. And I could give you one example of this man man who, you know, I had seen in the emergency room at Mass General dozens and dozens of times, and he suffered from a pretty terrible paranoid schizophrenia. He had terribly swollen feet, so we actually needed two buckets, one for each foot rather than one. And he, you know, just didn't say anything to me for about a month. And then finally, after about six weeks, he looked down at me and he said, hey, I thought you were supposed to be a doctor. And it was like the first person in the clinic that acknowledged I was a doctor, right? And I lit up. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, what the hell are you doing soaking feet? And I said, you know, I don't really know, but I'm doing whatever the nurses tell me to do. And he looked at me and said, you're a smart man. I do the same thing. And then a week or two later, he asked me for some medicine to help him sleep. And that was the beginning of a pathway to get him on all the medicines that we had spent literally 25 years at Mass General saying he was utterly resistant to take. The program expanded to other shelters. It opened hospital-based clinics and a headquarters with primary medical and dental care, also a medical respite facility. 
Most importantly, O'Connell says, the program brought compassion and health care directly to people on the streets. He visits people in parks by day and rides on a Pine Street outreach van by night, offering hot chocolate, soup, socks, a ride to a shelter, and someone to listen. And I had to learn to do all the things that I think professionally we didn't do because they were kind of boundary issues. Have coffee with people, listen to them, and talk to them about yourself. I talked to Tracy, it reminds me much, I spent a lot of years bartending. It reminded me of being a bartender. <laughs> Most people, you know, have amazing stories to tell and are anxious to tell it, but only if they feel safe. And so our job was to make them feel safe. I have a quick way to summarize this that Jim told me, actually. He said, you know, in med- medical school, we were taught be friendly, but not a friend. And then he added, but if we took that approach with this population, this homeless population, we would get nowhere. So it, a system of friends is really what they've developed. It's quite remarkable. Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program provides services to about 10,000 people every year, even the ones who find housing. O'Connell says he's always been drawn to people who are struggling. His mother had bipolar disorder and spent time away from him growing up when she was hospitalized. As a kid, he couldn't make things right for her. And as a doctor, he can't make things right for all his patients either. I can think of two women that we saw in the van the other night who have both been sleeping on the streets for 35 to 38 years despite everything we're doing. And I keep thinking, if that was my mother, you know, what would I do? How do you maintain that sense of patience and and mission when it seems as if somebody doesn't want the help? If they have a certain mental illness, they may not be disposed, predisposed to taking the kind of help that you're offering. Uh, Some people may be outright hostile. I'm sure you have dealt with and seen absolutely everything. How do you stay after them? Do you ever, I don't want to say give up on some people, but but, uh, how do you stay the course? I'm not so sure we analyze that well enough, but I do know that we rarely give up on anyone and that we've had a long enough history of caring for folks that we realize that it takes time and that some people will fire us and then come back and fire us again and then come back. (laughs) I think there was a cardinal rule that I've worked with all of our staff is that you can never take anything they say personally. If you Mm -hmm. take it personally, it becomes really soul-wrenching. Jim doesn't lose his temper. You know, in a way, you can sum up all of this in in that great line from Rousseau, which is, you know, what wisdom can you find that is greater than kindness? It works. It really works, even with people who are really floridly demented, I think. I've I've seen it work. Some of that anger I put down to, it's on us. You know, it's the system that is, you know, whatever they didn't get in school and whatever they didn't get at home or whatever happened to them, the anger for that is really what we're seeing. It's not at any of us. It's at the system and the structural things that put them there. And you have to deal with that system all the time because regardless of, of how much you do, even how much support you have from the city and the state, there are still things that are lacking and working against your efforts. And I wonder how you deal with that, because you have to, you know, encounter city officials, state officials all the time. And there are things, including COVID, including HIV when you first started, lack of affordable housing that just seem bigger and bigger all the time. And I wonder how you deal with those things. It's a complicated question, Lisa. And I I would say I would go down two paths. I think we learned a long time ago that our job, the, our niche, was to provide the best care we could to people who were experiencing homelessness you know, or had been homeless a long time and were now in housing. And then you start to realize that as a doctor and as a nurse, 
we can take care of people, but we're not really good at changing society. And then if we worry about that, it burns us out in a hurry. So we had to learn to let some of that go. Now, the other side of that is we work in a city that has been incredibly creative in coming up with the housing that can do. I think everybody acknowledges to scale it to what we need is still a long way to go. Somebody's going to really tackle this major problem of how do you get enough housing with enough support that people need to stay fundamentally in housing. Jim McConnell and Tracy Kidder, thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, Lisa, thank you for this opportunity. It's great to see you. Tracy Kidder's book about Dr. Jim O'Connell and how he and his team care for people who are homeless in Boston is called Rough Sleepers. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS.